in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Devin McKenna, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. How you doing tonight, Brian? Good evening, everybody. Doing well, Chad. How are you guys doing? Doing very well, and I'm very excited. You know why, Brian? Why? <laughs> I don't do Russell's bit as well, but uh, we have a new host. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast Nathan Lutz. He's joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know him from our Clue episode. He was wonderful. Nathan, say hi to everybody. Hey, thanks for having me on, and I'm really excited to get started with this. Yeah, excellent. We are happy to have new hosts. This means hopefully we're going to be able to generate more content for you guys, get things out on a more regular schedule, and most importantly, we're going to be able to talk about more movies. So that's what we're here to do. So before we dive into our movie today, let's get to know each other a little more. Brian, I'll start with you. What's the last movie you saw? Last movie I saw, actually, I, I want to give a TV show on this one, just because it's one of those special Cinemax only ones. If you guys haven't seen Warrior yet, it is very, very good. One of our uh, guest hosts, Andrew Newman, mentioned it to me, and it was something I actually watched a couple episodes of when it first got released, and then kind of forgot about it. And it just got a second season, and highly recommend it. All right, good stuff. And Nathan, how about you? What's the last movie that you saw? Well, you know, I think I'm also going to have to cheat because as I've plugged in both of the episodes in which I have come in to speak before, I'm just going to have to plug The Expanse, which is in its fifth season now and firing on all cylinders. Oh, yeah. You've made Brian very, very happy. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to cheat. Uh, the last movie I saw was 1964's Blood and Black Lace. It's kind of, uh, it's an Italian proto slasher. Uh, it was there before the Black Christmases and uh, the Toby Hooper movies. So it was actually pretty good. I enjoyed it. There were some unique kills for 1964 that I wasn't expecting. So check that out if you like Italian horror. Um, our movie today, we're going to be talking about heavily features a piano. If you guys had to pick one, what's your favorite movie that heavily features a musical instrument or band. Start with you, Nathan. Once again, I'm going to have to cheat here, but Mozart and the Jungle. Ah, cheating. I know, I know. I'm pushing the boundaries here, but uh, I'm going to have to call out Mozart and the Jungle, which as someone who grew up as a French horn player and still and still plays in groups, but has, has always had community groups being really important to him and was really into music in high school. That show really, really captures the somewhat fictionalized way that I always imagined professional orchestras to be like to play in, even though I'm pretty sure that the level of drama is something that was really only true of music camp. Yeah, I had some pretty dramatic music camps as well for fellow French horn players, so I will back that up. Brian? What's your favorite movie featuring a musical instrument or a band? I don't know if this is going to count as a cop-out or not, but I'm going to go with Desperado. Okay. For the uh, guitar? Yeah, a little mariachi action, some gunplay. Mm, I, I still feel like that's cheating. I, I'm going to keep taking the high road here. I'm going to go with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. That's fun. Michael Sarah actually had to dumb down his Battle of the Bands playing because he was talented at the bass. So you had to, to play really bad to make it look convincing. But as we talk about musical instruments and piano, Brian, would you like to reintroduce us to the movie we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, Chad. Uh, we're doing 1984's Amadeus. Excellent. That's Amadeus starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Holche, Elizabeth Barrage, and Simon Cowell. Not a bad accent on my part. It's from West Virginia. I'm sorry. Not Simon Cowell, like American Idol. Simon Callow. 
It was released in 1984, excellent year. Uh, the total gross was $51,973,029, placed 56th in the box office that year, placed ahead of the great movie Beat Street, never heard of it, and right behind Firestarter. Number one movie that year, this will please Russell Guest, is Ghostbusters. That's who you're going to call for your number one movie. IMDb gives it an 8.3. Rotten Tomatoes is even better. The critics give it 93%. And the audience loves it even more. They gave it 95%. This movie was nominated for a slew of Academy Awards. uh, 11, including dual nominations for the Best Actor. It won eight of them. It won Best Picture, Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham, Best Director, Best Costume Design, Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Best Makeup, and Best Sound. Uh, funny story on this, uh, the Best Original Score. Uh, when they went up to do the acceptance, they said, uh, well, thank goodness Amadeus couldn't be nominated. <laughs> so this movie used all Mozart's music. It is one of four Best Picture winners to never enter the weekend box office top five. Its highest was actually number six. So speaking of this movie, Nathan, we'll start with you. Have you seen Amadeus before? This is a movie that we started watching at one point in band class in high school. And I think my teacher realized, I'm not sure if she had seen it before, that this was a much more uh, hard-rated movie than one would anticipate based on the subject matter. And for someone not knowing why exactly we then stopped watching this movie, I am now not surprised that this was uh, not really considered suitable for a uh, regular high school audience, especially if we were doing the director's cut. Yeah, it was released as PG, which was just fine, but the director's cut suddenly makes it R. Brian, how about you? Had you seen Amadeus? I had not. Uh, this was my first time. Uh, it's one of those movies I had always intended on watching and then just never did it. Um, so I was happy to have the opportunity to jump on board with this. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's fun to get to see something for the first time and really enjoy it, especially when it came from the year you were born. Yeah, this this was new to me as well. It was it was something I thought I'd seen, and this is going to make me sound incredibly dumb, but I keep mixing it up with Amistad, <laughs> which is a wildly different movie about a very different subject. One's a slave ship, one's about pianos. Yeah, I have seen Amistad in movie appreciation class, but I had not seen Amadeus. It's a period piece. Those tend to hold up well. Nathan, did you think this uh, held up well? Did you enjoy it? I absolutely did. This is a real feast of seeing how things are produced, seeing people really play their instruments and deal with acting and playing at the same time and doing those things in a way that really not a lot of other movies or TV shows or anything managed to capture. Seeing this, you know, incredibly well made up and well produced. Prague, which is standing in as Vienna in the movie, a real, a real spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the better period pieces I've ever experienced. So they they really dove in, and the Academy Awards reflect some of their effort. Absolutely. Uh, so we're going to take a short advertisement break, but when we're back, Nathan, are you ready to spoil Amadeus for our viewers? Terrible. <laughs> Such a recent movie. <laughs> yeah, you have had oh geez, at this point, thirty six years. Yeah, I I should be able to do that quicker. It's my age. But yes, you've had 36 years. But if you haven't, check out the movie, then come back. But we're going to spoil the movie right after this. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And we're back. So, Nathan. Are you ready to break down 1984's Amadeus? Shafts of daylight fall on an asylum harpsichord, tracing vibrations of dust in the air stirred by its music. It is played by the suicidal Antonio Salieri, once-renowned court composer to the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, now inmate offered confession to a priest. The sin he professes? Betrayal and murder of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. 
Salieri recounts witnessing as a boy a performance by the younger Wolfgang, inspiring him to dedicate his life to music. With the untimely death of his disapproving father suggesting divine intervention, Salieri struck a bargain with the Almighty. Make of me a musical genius, and I will make my fame into your glory. What follows is a tale of hubris and spite. Salieri went on to achieve the position and notoriety he desired as Kapellmeister in Vienna, but Mozart's arrival in the city confronts the sanctimonious courtesan with two seemingly incompatible truths, the young upstart's brilliance and his mischief. Salieri witnesses Mozart's crude courtship of the future Constanza Mozart, but also his performance of incomparable music. He is astonished at Mozart's improvisation on one of Salieri's own compositions, yet offended at the insult it represents. He watches fellow Italian composers within Vienna admire the German Mozart's work, despite his incongruously rude behavior. For so pious a man as Salieri, it seemed that God had abandoned that formative bargain. And so Salieri sabotaged his rival, speaking against his operas and spreading rumors of impropriety. He abuses his position to embarrass Mozart's wife and uses a housemaid to spy on his work and finances. He uses the emperor's musical ignorance to make Mozart's work unfashionable and while continuing to pretend friendship and offer false help. Despite Salieri's efforts, his own failing marriage, disastrous finances, and growing alcoholism, Mozart continued to write music of astonishing power. In unwilling adoration, Salieri attends the very operas he conspired to defame until one leads him to a realization about Mozart's state of mind, the dark opera Don Giovanni. Connecting the opera's Mephistophelian entity to Mozart's recently deceased father, Salieri plots what he considers a fitting demise for his rival. Disguising himself as the dead patriarch, the Kapellmeister commissions from Mozart a requiem mass, planning to murder the composer upon its completion and claim the music as his own. Overworked and terrified, Mozart completes his final opera, but collapses with the requiem unfinished. Salieri pushes him to dictate the rest despite obvious exhaustion, but Mozart dies with the music incomplete, and Costanza arrives, locking away the pages and demanding that Salieri depart without them. Dawn light arises in the asylum as Salieri ends his confession. He tells the priest that God would rather a great musician like Mozart die rather than permit a mediocrity like Salieri to usurp his glory. Resigned to his role, he promises to absolve the priest and all the other patients of their mediocrity as well. Very nice, very dramatic. I kind of want a murder mystery now. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good to me. So obviously, uh, this was a dramatic retelling. They took uh, certain liberties, to say the very least, about the life of Mozart and the Viennese court. But uh, what did you guys think about this tale of a pious man who kind of dissolves into madness at the same time Mozart just effortlessly shows him up. I think it's a really fascinating story that achieves being relatable while also just making you absolutely hate Salieri's guts and everything about him. And yet you can, you know, see this this guy who thought he was destined for glory and even accomplished it in a way, but just couldn't stand not being the top. <sighs> I like Salieri. I, I I commiserate with him. Oh yeah, totally. I looked at that like, yeah, you. I am mediocrity. I am the patron saint of mediocrity. I love that. And you just there are these people in in your life that will inevitably be good. It's something that they put next to no effort into, <laughs> and it's it's infuriating. Brian, you what do you think of our story? Yeah, I I find prodigies just terribly interesting uh just the idea that something as complex uh as you know writing an opera can be as easy as free flowing thought from someone and it be excellent so i mean it's it's got to be like a superpower right i mean it's just wild how they depicted that and uh you know it, 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 he seemed like a guy that you'd want to hang out with too like he's like my kind of crazy <laughs> playing upside down, mocking other people's styles. And then uh, the, to cap it off the Solari fart at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I, it just looks like all, you know, drinking games and masquerades. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how effectively they both 
work against each other even though mozart's not trying he continuously makes fun of salieri or does things that salieri can only interpret as being personally insulting throughout this thing and you see it it's like ah i get it i get how much you hate mozart everything you're doing is completely wrong but like I understand. Oh, from the very first introduction where they meet each other, he's like, oh, yeah, I memorized within seconds what you did on this welcome march. Yeah. And I'm going to replay it. Not only am I going to replay it perfectly, now I'm going to improve on it. And I'm going to do it in front of your patron and the rest of the court. Kind of like Marvel does the DC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at, at this point, it's not even comparing Joseph's piano playing to uh, Mozart's. That is so true. I mean, if if you think about it, it's like Batman v Superman gets announced and Marvel's like, yeah, okay, time to completely overdo it with Civil War. Marvel's standing over the shoulder being like, gee, play G, no, play Batman, play Batman. No, not Jared Leto as the Joker. No, no, don't, don't, don't do that. It's the battle of the self-serious, hardworking artist versus the absolutely free-thinking flows like water artist and it's great i think you've hit an apt comparison brian i i like that but uh i've got to herd the cats here and and go back to 1700s vienna so they they took quite a bit of liberty here with uh Soleri's story oddly he he's this pious chase man he gives up touching women um in his that's an odd turn of phrase. I apologize for that. But that's actually how he phrased it in the movie. But he, he doesn't marry. Um, in real life, he was married and he had eight children. And a mistress. Yes. Seems like the Viennese court, that was just a thing. So they, they changed that. They made Mozart uh, probably more obnoxious than he actually was. That laugh only came from, there was like two women that wrote letters that said something about his laugh was giddy, but it sounded like metal scraping glass, which just sounds awful. Reproduced faithfully. Yeah, and the whole uh, and the whole murder plot was was kind of just added for dramatic effect. Uh, there really wasn't a rivalry, as far as I can tell, and as far as I've read between Soleri and Mozart. Although I'm sure you know, some punk twenty year old comes in and does everything better than you, you're probably not going to like him that much. Yeah, not that Salieri was a whole lot older. He was only six years Mozart's senior. Oh, really? Yeah, I I didn't know that. The movie depicted him as maybe what like twenty years older. Well, I think that the challenge there, the actor appears to be 20 years older, but even in the movie, it's noted that Salieri saw Mozart as a boy while being a boy himself. You know, he was still young enough to see Mozart and change his career ambitions to be musical. So I think it has more to do with the decision not to have two separate actors for courtly Salieri and the asylum salieri that's fair i also feel like the wigs add at least 10 years to everybody <laughs> except mozart yeah he's taken his off or dying his pink there were a lot of stresses to the actors here because they are not faking it they were taking four and six hours a day of piano lessons for this part i think tom Holte. I'm mispronouncing his name. I'm sorry, Tom. But he complained that his hands ached. He played so much. That's six hours a day is a long time to learn piano. And what they were doing, they did right. Critics have watched this, musical critics, and said, hey, the key they're striking is actually corresponding to what I'm hearing in my ear. So there was a lot of attention to detail. That's dedication. Uh, I think I would have just skipped out i i wonder if something like rocket man i'm i'm sure taron egerton learned but i don't know that they went to that level of dedication maybe i'm selling him short the thing that most amazes me is the degree to which it looks like they're doing it effortlessly you never see them concentrate like someone who's recently learned to play you know okay i'm gonna play this really hard phrase everyone in this film except the emperor who is supposed to be very bad at it they all look like it's totally natural to them. I'm especially impressed with Tom Holch playing Mozart, his playing on pianos and harpsichords around while giving everyone around him all of this wonderful sarcasm and, and, and laughter is just great. Yeah, the moment of him playing upside down. I mean, Brian, you're chugging a couple beers, but you've had practice. You think you could play your guitar upside down coherently while drinking? 
Uh, no, I, I worry more about it, my equipment <laughs> than that, <laughs> alcohol uh, notwithstanding. Um, no, uh, but then again, I'm I'm definitely not anywhere close to a Mozart on a guitar. So maybe if uh, maybe if I had a little bit more devil may care in me, uh, <laughs> I would uh, try some more death defying stunts. I've recently visited a trumpet player who has done a fair amount of experimenting with trumpets, specifically trumpet modifications. And at some point he had made a piece of tubing that would allow you to essentially flip the trumpet backwards to point over your shoulder with the effect that you had to use the valves backwards because now they're pointing the other way. And despite the fact that he had this thing for a little while, it was still a bit of a party trick sort of object. And you could just see, you know, you're trying to play this and the consternation on the guy's face as he's like trying to play things slowly. It's like, yeah, yeah, this kind of thing is really, really hard. That, uh, that seems like something straight out of Dr. Seuss. So at the heart of this movie, we talked about it a little bit is revenge. And even though that may not have been present in real life, what did you guys think about the revenge plot surrounding Mozart and Solari? Uh, you know, it's it's a great plot. I mean, it's timeless. But uh, I think you guys summed it up the best when you talked about how, you know, he really played up that jealousy, that anger. And I think that had it not been so affronting to him, it wouldn't have been nearly like, I don't think he had that kind of evil in him until he was really gripped by that level of jealousy. I don't know. It was, it really never even comes to flourish either. Like at no point in time, unless he actually did poison him at no point in time, do you actually see him cross the line? Oh, somebody didn't watch the director's cut. <laughs> yeah. The director's cut contains certain things that I would, I did. You did. You didn't, you didn't think that Did I missed them overtly stating he poisoned him. He, uh, he tricked Stanzi into almost having sex with him undressing. And then he rings the bell and gets her disgraced. Yeah. He gets her seen by a, a footman essentially. Okay. I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to, I just mean like he didn't actually do the killing per se. None of the capital crimes were committed. Oh. If that makes sense. Yes. Right. Yeah. He didn't actually poison him. That, that was madness. Yeah, and he didn't have sex with his wife. Like, I, I, I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying it's not bad. Like, obviously, he did a bunch of bad stuff. Like, I feel like he never goes full dark side. Right? After that That's one it. scene, I was <laughs> very much like, I was here for all your jealousy and, and, your, and, and all that sort of thing. I, I was going to understand it, even if even if it would actually show him, like, poisoning Mozart's food slowly over the, over the years. I was going to be somewhat willing to forgive in a movie character kind of way. And then that scene happened and I thought, okay, well, a line has been crossed and you are now completely irredeemable. Yeah, that was the point of no return for me as well. And you get it at first with Mozart clearly messing around with the girl Solari was interested in. And even though he'd taken that vow of chastity, he was still in love with the girl and it was just a plaything for Mozart. You could see the frustration of, okay, he just walks in and can have whoever he wants and then figures the only way to really hurt Mozart is to go after Stanzi. I can't call her Costanza because I just picture Jason Alexander walking in and that just, <laughs> it messes with me. So Stanzi she is. And that, that was a hard scene. Yeah. I mean, so going back to the sort of overall plot, for me, what's really interesting is it is about revenge and to some extent, but what really gets to Salieri, I think more than anything else, more even than, you know, Mozart having affairs with favorite students of Salieri, I think it's the fact that Salieri sees himself as someone who's given up everything. He has dedicated his life, sworn a vow of chastity. He's thought that he sacrificed so much and thought that by sacrificing things that would make him worthy or just completely by default the best. And the idea that someone else could have that level of success or more while indulging in all the things that Salieri had given up thinking that that would make him great, I think that's at the heart of what it is. It's not even that Mozart had an affair with that particular person, it's that Salieri saw his relationship with that person in like a pure musical light, and Mozart sullied that in a way that just broke Salieri's appreciation for the process of writing and teaching music. It changed what he thought it was. Yeah, and I, 
Brian, I thought of you during the scene with the emperor riding up to Salieri and it's like, oh, I have this promising new student that I am looking for someone to tutor. And Salieri starts going on about, hey, you know, I'd be honored. And it's like, actually, I was talking about Mozart. I just, Brian, I picture you in the background going, burn. That was a great scene. And also the follow-up scene where Mozart is so desperate that he gets pushed to go to this house of some nobleman and is is trying to tutor this guy's daughter while being completely disrespected by all the dogs in the room. And he's looking around and you can see the cogs turning in his head like, oh my gosh, this poor girl. But also it's impossible that I would be able to put up with this for more than one lesson. Yeah, and Brian, you were going to say? Oh, the line from the emperor when it was just like, oh, sick burn. I, I actually felt like that was out of place. Uh, given the strict rules that govern social blanket on the word I'm looking for. But in, anyway, I just thought it was odd coming from the governor to not maybe work around that more gracefully given the social norms of the time. Like he should have made it really obvious that he was going to select Mozart and not. It seemed very tactless from someone who's basically has to read how to be tactful as a ruler. You know what I mean? Like, or maybe it's just he didn't care that much. But even even when he utters it, I was like, that seems weird. But it's totally in character for the emperor. I mean, this is a guy who hangs around with these court composers and tries to be part of their gang in a way. Like you can see this music is really important to him. He holds big meetings for it and treats it as if it's this huge thing. And yet he's totally clueless about it. He he relies on the composers around him to guide him in terms of what's good, what's bad. And when he sees something, he has no language or verbiage that he's able to articulate why he likes or dislikes something. And so he's left with those hilarious lines of, oh, I think it's like too many notes. And all the other composers just kind of laugh and roll their eyes and say, yes, Emperor, very, very astute observation. It was too many notes. So I think this is someone who really can, you know, it's not surprising that he's not very tactful in the way that he approaches these things. I love the Emperor. He was a great character, but a lot of the times his interactions reminded me of my wife, where he poses a question that has an obvious answer, but he leaves it open-ended. And I every single time, will choose the wrong answer. There are two answers, two options presented to me. Just like, what do you think? And I will pick the first one, and it will not be correct. Just like he's, he's going, what language should this be in? Italian or German? And it's like, oh, yes, Italian. Love, love, love. Well, German, okay. German's brutish, but he clearly wanted German. All the Italian composers are like, don't you dare take away our national language as being the dominant thing in opera. I did think it was interesting. The German operas were done in English, but the Italian operas were done in Italian. So it just made that a little easier. It's like, oh, okay, we're doing German now. This is good. Yeah. But that goes to express what the basic idea behind that was, where it implies that the emperor knew that he wasn't being able to connect to a lot of these operas in a full way because he probably couldn't understand them as completely as he would like. And he knew that his people, his German-speaking citizens, would probably appreciate these things better if they could actually understand the language being used. So the fact that the music organizer, which is a really interesting title to have for the movie, John Strauss, the fact that the choice was made to have that translation to English, I think for an American or English audience, I think that gets across the idea that this is about having something familiar and not having something unrelatable. So we, we've talked a lot about this movie, but Brian, uh, would you give us a quick rundown of the cast? And this is a pretty big cast, so we'll, we'll trim it a, a little bit. Yeah, I'm probably going to keep it to, to 10 here. Uh, we had F. Murray Abraham as Salieri. We have Tom Hulse as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We have Elizabeth Barrage as Constance Mozart. We have Roy Detrice as Leopold Mozart. Simon Callow as Emmanuel 
shop brother. Canada. Uh, Christine Ebersole is Katrina. Katrina Cavalieri. Jeffrey Jones is Emperor Joseph II. Charles K as Count Orsini Rosenberg. And Kenneth McMillan, McMillan, excuse me, as uh, Michael uh, Schlumberg. And that would be in the director's cut only. Yeah, so this was just a a massive cast. Roy Dotrice is the father of Leopold Mozart. I'm not familiar with him as an actor, but he just has a face that always looks upset and disappointed. So well cast there. Yes, indeed. Uh, Alternate casting for this, and I thought some of these were pretty fun. Tim Curry and Mark Hamill both auditioned for Mozart, and both had played him on Broadway. So, Brian, you feeling Tim Curry or Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker as Mozart in this? I would absolutely watch it as Mark Hamill as Mozart. That's doable. That's easily doable. Aren't you afraid the laugh might ruin the future Joker laugh in the Batman animated series? Maybe. Or maybe you could just be like, hey, the Joker's Mozart. (laughs) Nathan, what about you? You want Tim Curry or Mark Hamill in this? I was going to take the the other direction. I I would be very happy to to have Mark Hamill as Mozart, but Tim Curry would be awesome. See, I I love Tim Curry, and I I say this while he's the best in every single movie he's in. That's the best thing about it. I almost feel like Tim Curry would be too much. Like he's a little bit too much of a ham for this role. But other names mentioned, and I do not want this, Mel Gibson as Mozart and and Mick Jagger. Ooh. Ugh. Nope. nope. I feel like Mick Jagger could do the talented musician doing things while drunk or on other kinds of substances very well. Who knows? That could have worked. Uh, Kenneth Branagh okay. was originally cast as Mozart as well. Uh, F. Murray Abraham, he originally auditioned for Rosenberg, but which is a much lesser part, but Foreman had him read for Old Soleri and liked his performance so much that he cast him for that. He felt he had one really good performance. He won an Oscar, so good call. Uh, and Meg Tilly was originally cast as Stanzi, but she tore a ligament in a street soccer game the day before filming. So that's... Uh, that cost her street soccer for the it's like a Michael Jordan's for the love of the game clause. Like you can just you can play basketball anywhere. Any any thoughts on the cast here before we move on to the film creation? I thought that Abraham put on a, an absolutely fantastic performance as both asylum old grizzled resigned Salieri and as younger jealous conniving Salieri. Yeah, his. His insane motions and almost twitches and hand movements while he's speaking were very good. I, I was particularly impressed by old Salieri. Brian, any any thoughts before we move on? Is it weird that I kind of felt like old Salieri looked like um, Gary Oldman's Dracula? Oh, you're right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gary Oldman looks like everyone, though. I had a really hard time getting getting over that. I was like, it's like they really do. It's very close. Just I think it's the eyes, like that. You know, hats off to the makeup team, the way they made his like little beady red dead eyes look. I don't know, but that's what I kept thinking of every time they shoot back to him. I actually kind of expected him to look at the priest and go, "You have no power here." <laughs> <laughs> very Lord of the Rings moment for me. But uh, we'll skip down to the producer. This was produced by Saul Zanitz, who is a collaborator with Milos Forman. Uh, collaborated on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, And Milos is our director here. So how do you guys feel Milos Foreman did as the director of Amadeus? Thumbs up for almost all of it. I think think the overall direction was just really, really well put together. Yeah, agreed. Brian? I agree with that. I also want to say that uh, I wasn't overly familiar with this director um, outside of the fact that he did this movie. And uh, it was a lot of fun kind of seeing other things that he had done and movies that I didn't even realize that he had done. And I don't know. This was a great movie. Uh, And I can always uh, appreciate a director's cut that's three hours long uh, as long as the movie is good. (laughs) Yeah, and we we did cover One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think it was last year. My goodness, 2020 was just 
nuts, so I have no concept of time, but you can check out our One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest podcast. Spoiler, we did love it, but yeah, Milos has also done movies like Hair, Ragtime, and Man on the Moon, uh, in addition to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. Uh, a couple more that I'm really not familiar with. I don't know if you guys are not. Leave It to Me was his first. Black Peter, Loves of a Blonde, The Fireman's Ball, and Taking Off. There were mentions during some of the opera scenes that they were going for things like four hours long. And in researching a lot of these varied, uh, some of them were shorter, even being less than an hour in some cases. But a lot of them were three hours or more. And uh, oh boy, I can understand where the emperor was coming from sometimes if everyone's watching for you to yawn during the whole time <laughs> that's got to be rough yeah it's, for me i don't know that i really wanted that extra 20 minutes i, I think i'm going to take a different path than brian here it, it made salieri a little it crossed a line for me a little too cruel because the scene with stanzi was part of the director's cut it's what caused the film to have an r rating and I think I might have appreciated it slightly more if it was only two hours and 40 minutes long, which is still an extraordinarily long movie. Especially for the time. Yeah. As far as, well, we've we've done Ben-Hur, early epic there. Uh, as far as cinematography, I thought this was particularly interesting. They did not use a lot of tricks. True. They only used natural light. There's a lot of candles going on on the set. And they were using curtains dynamically, so no light bulbs or anything to film anything to have to do with Amadeus. No real grand sweeping shots, but what they do have I thought was very effective. If, you, if you're going to put that much effort into set dressing and, and making those operas work the way that they did there, I mean, I don't know if that's really how mechanized or animatronic almost looking some of those sets could have been, you know, with, with people operating things with pyrotechnic displays everywhere and tearing through the wallpaper in that one parody scene. Uh, but man, you don't need to do a lot of camera tricks if you're going to put that much effort into making the scene itself dynamic. Yeah. yeah. And so this movie, it was set, we, we've said late 1700s to early 1800s in Vienna, Austria. The set design, it was actually filmed in Prague. They did use an original stage that Mozart performed on for Don Giovanni. One of the actors recognized it, and he actually cried getting to be able to perform on the same stage as Mozart. Otherwise, they just had four sets that they built. Uh, there was Mozart's apartment, there was kind of the palace scene, and two others that are, are slipping my mind. But it, it was really a minimalist set design so what what did you guys think of our our period piece here in our sets well first off in 2014 i actually visited prague with the uh with the pittsburgh new symphony orchestra we did a, a a bit of a european tour uh around prague and vienna and salzburg so actually all really great spots for someone who's following around a mozart tour mozart having been born in salzburg having done a lot of work in both Salzburg and Vienna and having premiered some operas in Prague. So it was awesome to see and felt absolutely right for what I'd for what I'd seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's awesome that you got to visit those. Brian, any comments on set design, location, or our period piece? Yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that this was a fairly low budget set movie because it never felt like it. Like the theaters felt legitimate, you know, obviously a lot of the movie happened in the apartment. You didn't really have a whole lot of segue stuff where you would have to build a lot of intricate things. Uh, so this is just a good example of how to do that right. Absolutely. I never really felt pinned into a small set. So they, they stretched every dollar to really get a lot of bang for their buck. The other funny part about that is, you know, most of this movie also has to do with opera, which is also doing a lot with a little space. So I feel like that kind of mirroring is just a cool thing. Excellent point. Excellent point. Brian's here with to educate us on operatic operations, wardrobes and costumes. This being a period piece, the costume department were probably very busy 
but I have to imagine they were having a good time. They clearly just went nuts with fantastic jackets, dresses. They had these ridiculous wigs and hats. Everyone's in this just fanciful party attire. This is upper class society. So what did you guys, how did you view the costumes of this period piece? Just a wonderfully lavish production. I really enjoyed the one scene where Mozart is trying on a bunch of wigs. And I just got to wonder, were there wig makers who were bored with a bunch of noble clients who uh, were, were all going for very standard things? And this Mozart guy walks in and he's just all a ball of energy looking for the most ridiculous wig possible. Some variety, yeah. Every high-class person is coming in. Oh, I want a flat one with a ponytail on the back. Yep, we've got 70 in the back. And Mozart's like, I want one that looks like I've stuck a fork in an electrical socket. What about so? What's an electrical socket? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good call. Ben Franklin will eventually do something somewhat like that within the near future. (sighs) I just, you know, I'm sure there's probably lengthy dissertation on this, but I've never understood the wigs. Yeah, I I once knew the history of this. I really did. And I think... I think it was literally because someone was bald in high society and then it just became fashionable to basically any they were the kardashians and that's what a terrible world we live in where we imitate the kardashians but Mm -hmm. people paid attention to high society and they said oh that's what they're doing we should do that too it's the same reason we have grass because it used to be a sign of wealth uh to have grass that you didn't have to farm and so everyone planted grass seed and now i'm stuck mowing it for like five months of the year thanks rich people (laughs) yeah and lisps from spanish nobility leading to barcelona (laughs) yeah there's we've been imitating rich people since we've been uh like chewing on monoliths back in ape time so our, our soundtrack i almost feel like they cheated here they used mozart it's appropriate and it actually the soundtrack went gold still i think one of the highest selling classical albums of all time and this movie ironically even though solari's not featured in it led to a revival of interest in solari's music so people went out and sought out his music and he kind of languished in obscurity so 100 50, 200 years later, he kind of got his revenge. I mean, Mozart's still more well-known, but he got his he got his due. So did you guys like the incorporation of Mozart here? No question. It was great to hear. that They chose a great ensemble to, to perform it with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. That's uh, just a, a really, really excellent, really distinguished ensemble. So really couldn't do much better for Mozart performances. And I really appreciated how they were able to tie in not just the choice of the opera music, but the story really dovetails so well with the fact that the last thing Mozart was writing was this crazy requiem, which when you look at it is a work which is really unique for its time. It's very complex. It's very dark and brooding, but also has a lot of energy. And the fact that the story has so much to do with that at the end makes it just wonderful that they were able to pull things from it as as a uh, as a source it's perfect yeah brian you you like the mozart soundtrack in the mozart movie yeah and i was probably one of those people that thumbed his nose a little too much at classical music as a kid and have really come to appreciate it much more now i can watch something like that this or go to the opera or go to the symphony and really truly enjoy myself and i'm not sure where that switch flipped but watching something like this i mean it's just it's so entertaining to see the progression and how that works And, you know, when we get into superlatives, I'll go into this a little bit more. Yeah, Mozart, his perviness actually was historically accurate. So a lot of the score, there's a there's a famous story of a student of his that had uh, she was well endowed, I guess is how I'm going to phrase this. And so Mozart, he designed a piece for her where she had to cross her arms to play quite a bit and it was one of those things where his musical genius also lent to his him being kind of a pervert so Mm -hmm. he he would uh 
he would attempt to, I guess, make her bounce while she's playing the piano. And so a lot of these unique eccentricities are, are played out even on a minor scale where he's dragging the, the girl under the table, but it comes out through his music as well. You see, you know, the, the Don Giovanni that kind of got twisted a little bit by his friend, but it winds up being this more common play than these high art operas that got played. I mean, this is someone who would write music designed specifically to be, to be played with dice. So you would have different sections of the music and you'd be at a party and a bunch of people would have instruments. You'd roll some dice and they'd have to play different sections of it or combinations of different parts. So this is someone who doesn't see music in at all the way that Salieri is perceiving music and who is looking to get something else out of it to say to say it in a very <laughs> politic way. Yeah, yeah, his genius is well scored here. So I, I'm going to echo both of you guys. I really appreciated it. So now it's time for our favorite part of the show. It's time to hand out some superlatives. Are you guys ready? Absolutely. All right. Well, our MVP, start with you, Nathan. Who's your MVP of Amadeus? I got to hand it to Salieri. F. Murray Abraham just... Knocks it out of the park. He wasn't mediocre? He was, in fact, very ochre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great choice. Great. I apologize. Great choice. <laughs> Never apologize for that. <laughs> Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, I went all the way back to the source material for this one, so I'm going to give it to Mozart himself. Um, absolutely fascinating. Had no idea really anything about his life until I saw this movie. Um, understanding that it is a work of fiction. But uh, when you watch something like this and, and you find yourself Googling stuff several times during the film, um, I think that really speaks volumes to the story itself. Okay. I think that's our first MVP for a real life inspiration for the movie. But yeah, Mozart and all his eccentricities definitely was inspiring. Still, uh, for me, I'm actually going to go with wardrobe department. Nice. I thought this was just such a spectacle and so well done. It was something I I play a bunch of games called Total War. And so whenever there was a guy from Sweden in there, I actually recognized that he would be Swedish by his uniform. And so just stupid things for, for me. I'm like, oh, this is... This is so fun, and I feel like, I hope they had fun and weren't tormented on the set design. But the hats, the, the galas, the operas, just loved every bit of it, and so it made it so real for me. Next up is our best supporting actor. Nathan? I gotta give it to the Emperor, Jeffrey Jones. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Just absolutely hilariously portrays the the part of a guy who maybe knows what he's doing with military matters and matters of state, but just has no idea what to do in musical society. Yeah, he was fantastic. He was actually my choice as well. I almost feel like Hamilton took some inspiration from this role with the King George part, because it's just great <laughs> yeah. having that glib, smart aleck, emperor, king, whatever it is in that role. Uh, Brian, who was your best supporting actor? Um, I went with uh, Elizabeth Barrage on this one. I really like her character as his wife, the support she shows and just how she kind of interwove the personal turmoil than patience that was required for someone whose mind isn't quite right. Yeah. Yeah. She was very emotional in this movie. I think she's the one we're supposed to connect with of. Like she's trying to do everything to help him succeed, but also experiencing all the negatives that Mozart really wasn't experiencing. As far as our hidden gems, underappreciated minor cast or elements, Nathan, who you got? I got to give this one to Alexander Pushkin. Alexander Pushkin is the one who wrote in 1830 the drama named Mozart and Salieri and who really crystallized this idea that Salieri had poisoned Mozart. And there are so many riffs on that theme that followed that. There's Rimsky-Korsakov wrote an opera in 1897, and then around the time of the play that this movie is based on, Amadeus, which was 1979, there was also a Russian 
miniseries actually like a like a tv miniseries uh soviet union made that did the same thing shortly thereafter there was a uh there's a music comedian that that i always enjoy going back to from this era um uh peter h shickley who who did his own a little nightmare music which is uh the night mozart died and salieri didn't and uh and then of course this film so i gotta i gotta hand it to alexander pushkin for for making all this possible see when i heard you were going off script as far as where where this was inspired i thought maybe you'd mention whoever designed the poster i still think this poster is one of the greatest movie posters of all time oh yeah like like you could delete everything on it except the graphic and people would be like oh that's for amadeus <laughs> So Brian, who is your hidden gem? My uh, my hidden gem is going to be R two D two Kenny Baker. Yes, yes. <laughs> Had to go there. I was just like, ah, Kenny Baker. That was such an amazing scene. The Don Giovanni play. Yes. <laughs> so Kenny Baker was also mine, but for the sake of variety, I'll throw in a very young Cynthia Nixon. Uh, she goes on Sex in the City, but here she is the maid to the Mozart family, and she's almost unrecognizable. So before we get to our recast, I've been informed that we have a hot take for this movie. We don't always do hot takes, but when we do, we want to hear them out. Brian, I hear you have a hot take as far as this goes. I would, so my this may not be the hottest of hot takes. I'm sure that's probably echoed before, but what I would love to see is a really, really high budget modernization of this film. And when we get into the recast, I think it's all about the two. You have to have strong characters at both Salieri and Mozart, and uh, I, I would be really excited to see a modernization of this. Okay, all right. So Brian wants a recast of the budget department. No, not necessarily the budget department. I just want to, like, you know, when they put on these big Vanity Fair style movies now. I think that you, you know, if you had more money to throw into, in you know, with with how film is now, I think this would be a beautiful movie to make. Absolutely, still really cheap on the soundtrack since it's kind of out of copyright. Nathan, are you ready for yours? All right, I'm going to stick by my earlier statement about Tim Curry. So I know Brian that you really appreciated the portrayal of Mozart, but I gotta say. My one criticism here is that that laugh was a little bit too extremely different than the rest of the character. I get that he's a bit of a goofball, but I feel like he could be more of a goofball and that it would support that laugh more because as much of as an amazing musical performance and a great performance in other ways, I feel like when it comes to that, it's a little bit forced for me. Tim Curry does have a great laugh. It makes me smile every time. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of went the other way. I went with Mark Hamill. I want to see Luke Skywalker be Mozart. I wasn't aware he did it in a Broadway play. I'd kind of like to see that as well. But I feel like he'd do justice here. And that's no offense to Oscar-nominated actor uh, Tom that played this role. But yeah, I think he'd do a really good job. Tim Curry, for me, I mentioned this before, he'd probably... St- managed to be the best thing in this movie but he just strikes me as too over the top he might become the only thing in the movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a force man every time you know from brian starting it off i think you started off with three musketeers every time he's in it if you see tim curry in a movie just know he's probably going to be our mvp <laughs> <laughs> brian what was your recast um so i i recast the duo so I feel like every Mozart has to have a good Salieri and vice versa. So I went with Bill Skarsgård as Mozart. Oh, I like that. And Leonardo DiCaprio as Salieri. Okay. Trying to think of Leo being, well, he's lecherous in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I think he could do that really well. Like in that it wouldn't be as impetuous as his uh, uh, Man in the Iron Mask character, but I think he can pull off that politely evil schemer um and then bill skarsgård's just someone i just like more and more everything i see him in i think he can do that slightly uh off kilter crazy really well and i think it would be really interesting to see the two of them play off one another yeah he most certainly can do crazy mr pennywise himself (laughs) so our our best shot or cinematic moment that'll go to what nathan 
the parody scene, the parody of Don Giovanni was just absolutely amazing. And the gradual building up of the mental challenges that Mozart is encountering throughout the movie seem to just explode in this scene where it, it just feels uncomfortable and the camera is shifting back and forth and getting hints of being a little bit Dutch angle in there as people are breaking through the walls and coming through the, the paper. It was just Yeah, that was just great. That was a crazy, crazy scene. I am not familiar with Don Giovanni as a an opera, but I would see that. The parody, yeah. Yes. Yep. Brian, what's your best shot or cinematic moment? I really enjoy the instances and the subtle progression toward his madness and illness in the upward shots of him conducting. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So you see this like progression, like his wig gets a little bit more messed up each time. He's paler, he's clammier. It just like you see him from, you know, I'm not going to call it sober greatness because he wasn't really sober at any point, but from his uh, put together genius to masterful madness. Okay, excellent. For me, it was just the simple shots of the opera chambers with all the chandeliers lit with candles. Man, what an incredible amount of work to get these dark opera house lit correctly. And it came out beautifully. We had wonderful shots of the audience, wonderful shots of the theater and the stage. Again, I, I have to wonder about the people in the 17 and 1800s shimmying up some gigantic ladder, lighting a chandelier that's got like 180 lights. You know, just the, the tedium of doing that, I guess that's what happens when they have an emperor. You can just order people to do that. The fact they managed to do this without light bulbs is just incredible. So that particular scene uh, at the opera house really struck me. Did either of you two spend a lot of the movie looking at the pyrotechnics and the lights and just thinking, oh my gosh, everything's going to catch fire. It's all going to burn down. <laughs> Wait, one... <laughs> These crazy Germans and their candles on Christmas trees and all these things like oh my gosh how do you how do you live so dangerous so ask london how that works out so best scene nathan there's a moment which i think you mentioned earlier where salieri is coming to a high point in his narrative and he's starting to shake with the intensity of what he's feeling and how angry he was and that was just ridiculously well acted just Again, Abraham, what a performance. Yes, yes, that was the madness setting in. I, I loved his performance in this movie. Brian, what's your favorite scene? My favorite scene is the back and forth between Salieri and Mo Mozart while writing the end of the Requiem in D minor with them musing about you know, how the music sounds, like, are you getting this? And the fact that they're, they're just basically singing stuff back and forth, and that translates to him like madly writing down the music. And I just thought that was artfully done. You know, I, I read some trivia about that, and Tom was actually feeding the wrong lines or skipping lines. So the confusion on Abraham's part was genuine. He was hearing things that he wasn't supposed to, so he's trying to react, but there's genuine confusion going on there. So kudos to Tom for uh, leaning into that role and making it more confusing. Man, I felt for Salieri in that scene. It was Mozart's over there just going like, okay, okay, write this, this chord and arpeggio, which will consist of like 20 different notes if you if you sort of extrapolate out what he means and then he moves on to the next sentence immediately and Salieri's like no 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 wait 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 I didn't get that that's really when he realizes the depth of how far away he is from Mozart's talent yeah like, oh my goodness uh, for me it was a more comedic scene it was the silent ballet and the emperor walking in and he's asking is this modern and then he leans over he's like do you like this? <laughs> and it turns out, it's like, okay, I've ordered that you can't have a ballet, but this is stupid. So he goes on and just changes it. So the emperor was, he was my favorite character. I, I loved him in this. Uh, best wardrobe makeup moment. Once again, the wig scene. Oh my gosh, that was hilarious. Yes. Yes, the wig shop. Brian? How about you um i think i like the uh the wig 
with the electrical socket hairdo. Um, I think was it is it just me or was it like slightly pinkish purple tinted as well? Yeah, he. I think he colored it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that really brought out the kind of rock star nature of you know what they were going for with him, and it kind of summed up him. And that was probably my favorite set piece slash wardrobe. Yeah, that was great. I love the uniqueness of his wig and how they made an eccentric man stand out even more. For me, it was actually one of the things I was complaining about the director's cut, but I thought the best wardrobe or makeup moment was when Stanzi comes into Solari's chambers to seduce him. She's got this really large hat on, and as she's undressing, it's showing the level of detail of the costumes. She's got on all these period pieces. So it was really a chance for the costume and wardrobe department to show off a little bit, even in a very depressing scene. I will give a special shout out to Solari's old man makeup. You guys touched on it, but it took four and a half hours a day. Oh yeah. I didn't even realize it was the same actor. It was just, he was so unrecognizable for me. Uh, Change one thing. Nathan, what are you changing? I think we need, at some point, to reference a French horn concerto. Just one. Just for me. I need to hear it. It's funny. I was doing some research on this, and Mozart spent his time in Vienna. He wrote one opera almost immediately off the bat, and then he spent three years just writing symphonies and concertos and other sorts of things, and that's when he was writing his horn concertos, and Salieri was was writing a bunch of operas during that time. So, So Mozart does Abduction of Seraglio, and then Salieri writes like nine other operas before Mozart then three years later gets around to writing his bunch of operas. And then Salieri stops writing operas during that period, which is interesting in, in sort of thinking about the terms in the movie where all of a sudden they're almost unable to operate at the same time or something. But also, come on, I have been brought up as a horn player on stories about uh, the, the the French horn player who was Mozart's friend who got him to write these four awesome concertos. And I got to see it. I got to see it, man. Just just a little. <laughs> it's self-serving, but I play it too. So I, I'm going to allow it. Brian, what are you changing in Amadeus? Uh, this is going to sound like kind of a petty thing, but when I bought this movie, uh, one of the things that I kept Googling were you know various uh, Mozart operas and where you can watch them. I kind of wish this had come with one. Like just as an extra added feature, uh, bonus disc or something like that, just a real Mozart opera. Okay. So I would have changed the uh, the marketing, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, for me, some of the more extreme liberties they took with the story, I, I'm not sure why Salieri had to be chased. He could have been a pious person without that storyline. That was a weird thing to have happen. It still could have had a mistress that Mozart messed with and the laugh. You know, there's there's nothing really to back up that Mozart had a laugh like that. And I felt it was just a bit too much. So I'm I'm toning that down. We're gonna make our historical drama a little more historical. So for our best quote, Brian, what's our best quote of Amadeus? I was staring through the cage of those meticulous ink strokes at an absolute beauty. Yeah. I love that moment in the movie of just well he's better than i thought and this is frustrating and how dare he be so brilliant i think for me i'm going to steal this line and just use it in my everyday life mediocrities everywhere i absolve you 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 all like Mm -hmm. i'm coming into work on monday (laughs) and just sending out emails saying mediocrities everywhere i absolve you i am the patron saint of mediocrities yes that that yeah. was a great confession i speak that, to you that really is yeah i am their champion i am their patron saint yeah it's a great insult to someone be like you're the patron saint of mediocrity nathan what's i gotta come back to that wonderful after the first opera ends mozart says so emperor what did you think of it and all he can come up with is too many notes. Yes. I think I might steal that one yes. too. The ear can only hear so many notes. That was a real criticism. That actually happened. So kudos to the historicity of that. Uh, so now it's time for our ratings. Nathan, we'll start with you on a zero to five star scale. 
What are you giving Amadeus? I'm going to give Amadeus a four and a half. Four and a half. Excellent. Excellent rating. Brian, what are you giving Amadeus? Um, I am going to give this a solid four. I think this movie was fantastic. Um, I do think it's rewatchable, although it's not something that I'd see myself putting on once a month just due to sheer length. Uh, but no, I'm glad it was picked and I'm glad I own it now. Excellent. Yeah, for me, this is just a sliding scale here. I'm giving it a three and a half. That is a good rating for me. I do think this was an absolutely gorgeous movie to look at. Solari's part particularly was captivating, but uh, parts of it between Mozart's laugh and just the length, I think wore on me a little bit more. Maybe if I didn't watch the director's cut, maybe it, it would be bumped up to a four for me, but the length got to me a little bit. I do think this is one, if I actually did revisit, it would probably be bumped up more. I think there's going to be things that I didn't catch in the background or didn't appreciate enough. So I, I will probably give this one a, a rewatch down the road, uh, maybe with my wife, just so we can watch it together and appreciate the music. So that being said, do you guys want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So option one is Alexander from 2004. Alexander, the king of Macedonia and one of the greatest army leaders in the history of warfare, conquers much of the known world. Our option two is JFK from 1991. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison discovers there's more to the Kennedy assassination than the official story. And option three, born on the 4th of July, 1989, the biography of Ron Kovic. He's paralyzed in the Vietnam War. He becomes an anti-war and pro-human rights political activist after feeling betrayed by the country he fought for. So we've got an Oliver Stone theme. Brian, out of Alexander, JFK, and Born on the Fourth of July, what movie are we going to do next time? Uh, I think we've got to go JFK on this one. Okay. JFK it is. We are going to be going back-to-back -back on record-length movies, but uh, we'll break it down for you in our next episode. <laughs> Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us as a host. We look forward to future episodes. This was a lot of fun doing this one with you. Yeah, thanks so much for getting me on, and I'm looking forward to doing this again absolutely and remember all the lords ladies knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you so subscribe rate and review us on itunes spotify stitcher google play youtube or wherever you get your podcasts give us a like on facebook follow us on twitter at movie underscore retro or email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com so producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it's not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and goes towards making the show better for the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? If you could either be God's worst enemy or nothing, which would you choose? <laughs>